All right, growing up on a farm, we had a, two or three ponds. We, we, had, we had two real ponds and then one little dinky pond that we didn't really do anything with. The cows went in. Uh, we had one pond that, that was pristine. We had one pond that was clear. You could see you know, a couple of feet down into it. The water was clear. Uh, it, it was very beautiful. Uh, it was very clean. And we even uh, swam in that pond from time to time. And then, and by the way, this is the picture of it. Um, I wish it's much less glorious than this photo. Then we also had one of these ponds, right? We had a pond that was disgusting, a pond that you don't want to get within 10 feet of, a pond that if you saw a child fall in, you might just say to yourself, well, there's nothing we can do. I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm not going in there, right? Uh, there, was a, there were two different ponds, and, and they were really right beside each other. On that second pond, there was this oily, cesspool-looking grossness on this pond. Uh, but the interesting thing about the second pond was it hadn't always looked like that. It hadn't always looked like this. In fact, at one point growing up, it, it was just as clean as the other pond. It, it wasn't a cesspool. There wasn't an oily uh, uh, top film to that pond. And randomly, it just seems like one day, all of a sudden, there started to be this, this film on top, this oily layer on top. I don't know if you've ever seen a pond do this. You've been to Camp Inagahi, you have. Wow, what a pond, right? Uh, but if you haven't seen a pond do this, this is what's happening, and, and uh, researchers and, and scientists are still trying to discover what really is going on with this phenomenon and what the best treatment is and what the cause of it is. But what this film on top of the water, it's called biofilm. Uh, and they're trying to figure out what it is, but right now their belief is that this occurs when there is an overwhelming amount of bacteria growing from decaying plants or, de or decaying animals. And so what, what you see with these kind of ponds is you can throw a rock on top of that film and for a couple of seconds it'll expand, but then what's going to happen right after that? That film is going to come right back over the top and, and, and form that layer, that, that skim layer in between the water and that top, that biofilm. And what you're going to see is, is no matter what you do to try to mix that grossness away or, or maybe you skim it, oh, you can't do it because it's just part of the pond now. And what you're going to see is it's not going to mix no matter what you do. It's almost like oil and water we know that they don't mix. What's fascinating about this phenomenon is that it used to look like this. It used to be a pond that, that looked just as clear, just as beautiful, just as inviting as anything you could possibly imagine. It used to be one body of water. It used to be perfectly mixed together in perfect harmony, but now because of this extended period of bacterial growth, the pond became unrecognizable. Tonight in our study, the Restoration Movement, if we were to compare the movement to a pond, 
we're not talking about the clear pond anymore. We're not talking about a, a, a pond that looks inviting, a pond that you would want to swim in, a pond that, that, that you want to have fun around. It's, it's, it wouldn't be nice. It wouldn't be clear. This isn't a pond you'd want the kids to go swimming in. The restoration movement at the time of our study tonight is a pond with biofilm from, from corner to corner. Its entire diameter is filled with this gross film on the top. Because over the past few weeks, we've been talking about and looking at some of the issues that we can see in the restoration movement and some of the issues that they had to face. And one after the other, as each of these issues came, the bacteria, so to speak, grew and grew and became grosser and grosser until the movement itself had become disfigured. You know, a couple weeks ago we talked about the crack in the windshield and we talked about last week how that crack in the windshield has, has grown and gone further and further out. It started out with the issue of missionary societies and, and it spread into the issue of instrumental music. And tonight, the final blow to the windshield of the restoration movement comes in the form of the Civil War. You know, <clears throat> I'm not as, as, as old as some of you uh, I, I've, I've been to many different gospel meetings, many different sermon series, many different lectureships, many different seminars. Uh, as, as a minister, I've, I've been to uh, undergraduate school. I've been to graduate. I, I don't know if I've ever heard an entire lesson dedicated to the spiritual ramifications of the Civil War. Maybe you have, and, and if you have, that, that's, that's great. Tonight, that's what we're going to be trying to doing, or, or trying to do. We're, we're going to try to go back to the time of the Civil War and try to understand the ramifications, the, the impact it had on the Lord's church. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I can't remember going back in time and hearing a lesson on the Civil War, but for some reason or the other, I, I can go back in my mind and remember people talking about uh, the Revolutionary War. When people try to talk about, you know, was it the right thing? If, if you were a Christian back then, would, would it be right to oppose the government? When you look through the lens of Romans chapter 13 and, and you try to understand that. And so I, I, I've, heard, I've heard some thoughts about the Revolutionary War, but not necessarily about the Civil War. I've never had a lesson dive into the spiritual ramifications on the Lord's church. You know what's amazing? We, we, we don't have to guess what the church taught at the time. We, we don't have to wonder what the church talked about because we can look back and, and, and look at the history and see what the restoration leaders taught at this time. We, we can go back in history and see what some of the men and some of the preachers taught at the time. After studying it for myself, I think, I think there may be a reason we don't talk about the history of the Civil War. After going to, 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 the, to the resources that I have, I think there may be a reason that, that we try to shy away from, from talking about the Civil War and, and talking about what happened in that time. Perhaps because in a large part, we are embarrassed by that particular history as a brotherhood. Instead of focusing on where the movement failed, it's, it's much more enjoyable, it's much more uh, fun to talk about where the movement triumphed. 
but tonight this study is going to be pretty difficult as the past few have been this study is going to be pretty difficult for a few reasons first of all we are charged tonight with investigating standalone quotes and thoughts from people who lived two centuries ago that's always a difficult thing to do is just to take a quote here and a quote there and and try to understand what's actually happening second of all we also have a difficult task before us because we are tasked with looking at that quote and then trying to assign certain motives or certain meanings that those men had when they said those quotes even though we never knew them personally so up front before we even get into it tonight with that with that in mind I just want to say up front that specifically for this class this class tonight this lesson tonight is being delivered by an insufficient communicator. I'm not an expert on this issue. I'm not an expert on Civil War history. I'm not an expert on on the whole realm of this issue. And, And I would be foolish to come across any other way than as someone who is still learning, someone who is still asking questions, and someone who is still gathering information. All I'm asking you to do tonight and all I'm asking myself to do tonight is to read some of these quotes and to look at some of this history and try to discern for ourselves what to do with them. But I ask you to do it with humility. I ask you to do it with an open mind and an open heart. Before we get into the study for tonight, Very briefly, let's remember what brought us to this point tonight. In phase one of our study, we talked about an introduction to the movement. We saw the biblical basis for restoration plea and the restoration theology that we've been talking about throughout this whole class. In phase two, we talked about the foundation of the movement and we saw how it got to be where we are tonight when it comes to church history. In phase three, we saw the formation of the movement and we saw some of these prolific moments that that led to the the rise of the movement we're talking about with restoration. And in phase four, we've been talking about the instruction of the movement. And over the past few weeks in phase four, we've been seeing how the restorers addressed the issues of missionary societies and instrumental music. But what we haven't gotten time to talk about yet when we come to these issues of missionary societies and instrumental music What we haven't had time to talk about yet is the fact that the views on these two issues were really split geographically. We haven't had time to get into this yet, but the views on the use of missionary societies and the use of instruments were generally split between north and south. You see, because northern congregations that found themselves in urban areas with bigger cities and higher industry, oftentimes they were in favor of the missionary society and in favor of the instrument. Whereas southern congregations that found themselves in more agricultural areas with smaller cities and less industry were oftentimes and generally in opposition to missionary societies and the instrumental music. 
Here's some quotes that talk about that. Humble says, during the years just before the Civil War, a majority of Southern Christians came to share Fanning's view that there was no biblical authority for missionary societies. You see that idea of, of many of the Southern congregations not, not, not liking the idea of missionary societies. Here's another quote. Humble says, it is interesting to note that while the organ was the focal point of bitter controversy in the North, David Lipscomb had little to say on the subject in the Gospel Advocate, which was a southern uh, periodical. It's, it's, the, it's the periodical we, we know today. He says the reason for this editorial silence was that the churches under Lipscomb's influence were already opposed to the organ, and it was simply not an issue in the South. Hence, there was little need to address it. Another quote from Humble. Why did the great majority of churches in the North accept missionary societies and instrumental music? The influence of Isaac Eret was decisive, but this was not the whole story. And what he goes on to talk about, I, I didn't want to include the whole quote there, but he goes on to talk about, really when it comes to the South, you had some of these prolific leaders, some of these very strong voices, some of these very strong uh, thoughts that were happening and, and being portrayed all throughout the Brotherhood in the South. Whereas in the north you didn't have such, device, such decisive, I mean, leadership. The strong leaders were usually found in the south, and so you, you didn't see some of these issues as much in the southern congregations. And when we think about the missionary society, remember we, we were talking about an issue that started in the mid-1830s, went on into the 1840s, Remember, even into the early 1850s, we were talking about this being an issue. And we're talking about instrumental music. We're talking about an issue that, that really began in the church, in the brotherhood, in the 1850s and in the 1860s. And both of these issues, for one reason or the other, tended to be decided on where you lived. And what you're going to see happen after that is this divide between northern congregations and southern congregations, it continued to fracture and get more and more distance in between them, leading up to what? The Civil War. Where yet again, the issue would be split between what? North and South. And so tonight, as we get into this study, the spiritual issue that faced the church during the Civil War was perhaps the most serious of them all. The, the, the issue of the Civil War was really twofold for the church. There was really two issues that the church had to confront and, and had to address and, and had to deal with in the time of the Civil War, and that is slavery and pacifism. The first question being, is it okay for a brother in Christ to own slaves? Is it okay for a brother in Christ to try to do whatever it takes to protect against the abolition of slavery? That's the question they had to ask. Secondly, they had to ask, is it okay for a brother in Christ to kill another brother in Christ in war. 
is it okay for American citizenship to trump kingdom citizenship? Is it okay for Southern pride to trump the unity of the Lord's church? What an issue to face. Can you imagine having to deal and having to grapple with with these questions that the church did? Thank God tonight that we don't have to answer these questions in our lives. Thank God tonight that we don't have to face this decision. And and I pray with all my heart that we never have to answer these questions or face these decisions in our lifetime. But they did. The church at this time, the Lord's church, the church that we are a part of 200 years ago had to face this issue, and it's an issue that we don't talk about in the Lord's church. They faced this issue. The Lord's church had to address this in a very real, in a very personal way. You see, because when it comes to this issue, it's not an issue of of necessarily opening up God's Word and disagreeing on a matter. This is an issue that is life and death. This is an issue where you have brothers in Christ setting another brother in Christ's home on fire. This is an issue where you have brothers in Christ making another sister in Christ a widow. This is an issue where you have brothers in Christ who were baptized perhaps into Christ at the same tent meeting just for a couple of years later to be found facing one another on the battlefield of war. This is an issue where you have white brothers in Christ who own black brothers in Christ. And the thought at the time was that's just fine. Thank God. We don't have to face that tonight. Amen? But they did. J.W. McGarvey, he says, But a storm of human passion, seldom equaled in the history of our sinful world, is raging around us. And we have caught the infection. J.W. McGarvey's talking about the Civil War and some of the passions that was going out, some of the feelings, some of the emotions that was happening within the Lord's church. Such an evil that has seldom been equaled in the history of the world. This sinful world, it was raging about the church, and he says about the church that they were taken away with it. That they had caught the infection. What Brother McGarvey is trying to say is that they had gotten swept up in this worldly strife. That the church had caught the same infection that the society had contracted. Interesting to note him using this idea of an infection. Very similar to pond bacteria growing. McGarvey continues... He says, the results are such as as human passion always must produce. Many brethren have been swept into hopeless apostasy. The zeal of many has been chilled. The evangelistic labors of nearly all have been contracted. Churches languish. Congregations dwindle. 
And there is a fear that such divisions as have, been, as have distracted the religious sects of the day may yet disgrace our history. Wow. You know, it's hard to look at this quote and, and to see, even try to visualize Brother McGarvey's disappointment that he had with the church. You can see that the disappointment that he had as he thought about the society, the, the, the church that he was living with and, and working with and, and the church that he had worked for his entire life has, has contracted this in, infection that has led to the lack of zeal in all the brethren. The evangelistic fire that they had, it had been frozen over. In the meanwhile, churches were languishing. Churches were dwindling. The church that was once on fire and spreading like wildfire throughout the nation had halted to a, to, to a stop. And the movement that had prided itself on unity and coming together hand in hand was now engaged in hand-to-hand combat. The zeal for restoring the ancient order of things, restoring the ancient order of the New Testament church, had now been quenched. It had now been frozen. Congregations were dwindling. Congregations were languishing. What is he talking about? He's not talking about, you know, what we see today and sometimes when, when pews start to go empty and, and you're just like, well, they just went off to uh, the denomination or, 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 or they just went to another church or they just went to another... When Pew started missing in this time, we're talking about people were dying. Brothers were dying. Churches were dwindling, not because they were going to another congregation, but because people were literally dying and killing one another. That's why at the end of this quote, he says, this is a disgrace. This is a disgrace to the very plea that we have based this entire movement off of. People in future generations will look back at this and and this moment in the church's history and, and, and see it as a huge disgrace. Let's that's a little bit about the Civil War in general, but let's let's zero in on, on the two issues, slavery and pacifism. Let's deal with the first one, slavery. Let's see what the restoration leaders had to say about the first issue that the Civil War had on a Christian. And again, remind yourself, that's the question. Is it okay for a Christian to own slaves or to protect against the abolition of slavery? Here's a quote. In a day when there were fanatical extremists on every side, Alexander Campbell taught that the issue was not a moral one, but a political one. That is to say, slavery was neither right nor wrong in and of itself so far as the scriptures taught, but that the settlement of it was to be left up to political discretion. The scriptures neither condemned nor upheld slavery. Therefore, it must be left to the political government as their political issue. That's tough to hear, isn't it? That's tough to hear. Here's this giant of the brotherhood, this giant of of the Lord's church, this giant that had had taken so many different stands when it comes to 
comes to doctrine, it comes to God's word, it comes to New Testament practices, here he is passing the buck. This isn't a moral issue. This incredible injustice to mankind, it's not a moral issue. This is a political issue. Let's let them deal with that. Instead of taking a stand against the injustice and mistreatment of fellow human beings, and in a lot of cases, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as I said, Campbell passed the buck, saying that it, somehow this isn't a spiritual issue, this is a political issue. It's not something for me to comment on, it's something for the government to decide. You know, I look at that quote and I, I think about this quote. I try to find the originator, just know it wasn't me. But they said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Think about that quote in the context of what we just heard from Campbell. Here you have this great giant of the faith who did nothing. Campbell's good friend, we've talked about him a couple of times, Walter Scott, remember Walter Scott? Very influential person in the movement. He took Campbell's lead on this issue. It said this, The manumission of our slave population can be accomplished now only by a means from which heaven only knows. I know it not. I am no friend of slavery. I deprecate its commencement. I deplore its continuance and tremble for its issue. But I am silent. Because I think to speak would be folly. What ought to be said I cannot say. And what ought not to be said I will not say. Man. Again, Alexander Campbell did not stand up for what was right. And, and yet again, here we have a, a, another brother, this giant in the faith, not standing up for what was right. He knew what he wanted to say. When it came to slavery, he, he said that this is wrong. He knew it was deplorable. He knew it was detestable. He knew that it was unjust. He knew that it was sinful. He says, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to remain silent. Instead of preaching adamantly against slavery, they were silent. You know, at the end when he says, what ought to be said, I cannot... I believe he's trying to, what he wanted to say is slavery is wrong. For one reason or another, he couldn't say it. Perhaps he couldn't. It's so because you have Alexander Campbell and Walter Scott and many other restoration leaders refusing to address this issue. Campbell said, this is up to the political government, this is up to the government, whoever basically wins this war will decide the issue. So what are you going to see a bunch of brothers in Christ do? Well, I better enlist. If it's up to the government to decide, it's going to come down to who wins this war, so I better put on a, a, a uniform and get a, a musket and get to action. That's exactly what Franklin, we've talked about in the past few weeks. This is what he said. Did the Lord and the apostles do right in never deciding the question whether slavery is right or wrong? 
discussing and never saying one word about that question in any form? If they did, we do right when we treat it in the same way. If they did wrong, we do wrong when we treat it in the same way. Yet again, you have this non-answer from Benjamin Franklin. More so in disappointing in this case is he's trying to use the New Testament to justify slavery. What he's saying is Jesus never condemned slavery per se. The apostles never condemned slavery per se. So, so who am I to condemn slavery? Many people say this. But what Franklin what Scott, what Campbell, they refuse to realize is the big difference in the slavery of the 1800s and the slavery of the New Testament age. You see, New Testament slavery was, was often to pay debts. It was often more related to indentured servitude. You see, because the person would be in debt and they would agree with with the landowner or, or with the business owner, they would agree on a certain amount of time that they would serve them in order to pay that debt. And once you paid that debt and you set, and you set that time, and once that debt was paid and you served that amount of time, you were free. This, on the other hand, when we're talking about American slavery, it was not based on debt. It was not based on any wrongdoing. Instead, it was based on skin color. Instead, it, it was based on how you were born. It was based on something you had absolutely no control over. In the 1800s, slavery was their birthright. Tolbert Fanning, a noted Southern restorer, said this about slavery. While it is true that many in the North look upon slavery as a great evil, but as the abstract question of good or evil, 99, or, yeah, 99 hundredths of the disciples of the South will have no controversy. If it be a destructive sin, it is our misfortune in the South. We could not prevent the state of affairs. And now we must make the best of the subject that we can. Man. He says, 99 hundredths of us would see no issue with slavery, so why do you care about what we're doing down here? Sadly, instead of condemning the injustice of American slavery. Campbell, Walter Scott, Benjamin Franklin, Tolbert Fanning, and many others did nothing. And that silence led to evil triumphing. Because good men did nothing for decades. Fortunately though, there's a second part of the issue. While it is true that none of those men stood out openly against slavery, almost every single one of them did stand out against actually fighting the battle. Fortunately, you can see most of these men pled for pacifism. They pled for the brotherhood to not join in the fighting. 
man, isn't that amazing that they would take such a stand when it comes to not fighting the battle, but take no stand when it comes to their black brothers and sisters. Interesting to note. You're going to see this second issue that faced the restoration with the Civil War, and you, you, we've got to ask the question, is it okay for a brother in Christ to kill another brother in Christ in war? Is it okay for, for, that, for that southern citizenship or that American citizenship to trump our kingdom citizenship? And J.W. McGarvey re-enters the discussion when he says, I would rather 10,000 times be killed for refusing to fight than to fall in battle or come home victorious with the blood of my brethren on my hands. What's McGarvey talking about here? Maybe you don't know this, but in this discussion on choosing whether or not to fight, sometimes this literally led to brothers in Christ killing other brothers in Christ. People who refuse to fight for the South, if you're not going to fight with us, then we are going to kill you. There's instance after instance of that actually happening in the church. One brother in Christ is so mad that his other brother in Christ won't fight alongside of him that he killed him. So McGarvey says, I would rather 10,000 times be killed like that I would rather refuse to fight and be killed 10,000 times than to come home after killing even one of my brothers in Christ and deal with that blood on my hands for the rest of my life. Humble says, McGarvey asked his brethren what, what the 12 apostles would have done had they been living during the Civil War. Six in the north and six in the south. Would, would they have urged Christians to enlist? McGarvey described himself as standing in between my brethren and the battlefield with the New Testament in one hand warning them as they hope for heaven to keep the peace. Even though you see Alexander Campbell, even though you see J.W. McGarvey, even though you see Benjamin Franklin and many others come out vehemently opposing fighting in the war, going to see many, many, many brothers in Christ fighting in this, in this battle. Humble says, on the other hand, there were thousands of Christians. He's not talking about Christianity at large. He's talking about members of the Lord's church on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line who enlisted in the armies. Alexander Campbell's son wore the Confederate grave as did Barton W. Stone, Jr. and T.B. Larimore. Franklin said this about the war and, and fighting. He said, we will, not take arms up, up, we will not take up arms against, fight, or kill the brethren we have labored for 20 years to bring into the kingdom of God. Franklin's saying, we, we've labored to just bring them in and to save their souls and to baptize them into Christ and, and to see them grow in the church and yet now we're going to turn around and, and kill them? Literally? We're not going to do that, he says. 
When it comes to the Civil War, let's just close this part of our study with this quote from Bill Humble. It says, The Civil War had so shattered the sense of brotherhood between Northern and Southern Christians that they could never again be called one people in any meaningful sense. This does not mean that the Civil War was alone responsible for the ultimate division. What he's talking about is the other two issues that we've talked about the last couple of weeks with missionary societies and instruments. But what shattered the brotherhood what shattered this sense of, of, of camaraderie between brothers and sisters in Christ was the fact that northern and southern Christians had killed one another in war. Tonight, as we try to make this lesson matter, first of all, I hope you already see that it matters. But as we try to make this matter and, and, and apply it to our lives tonight, what can we learn from those who came before us? What lessons can we walk away with and apply into our own walk with God? You know, I would love to think if the roles were reversed, if it was you and me that had to answer these questions when it comes to slavery or pacifism. Surely we wouldn't go to war against our own brothers and sisters. Surely we wouldn't fight and bear arms against our own brethren. Surely we wouldn't stand by and let our own brothers and sisters be treated so poorly be enslaved surely we wouldn't do that but you know I'm not so sure I'm not so sure because at the root of both of these issues the symptoms still persist today at the very core of, of both of these problems with the civil war that the church was presented with are two issues that I and every one of us can see similar versions of today. You see, because at the root of slavery is what? Racism. At the root of slavery is, is racism, and that is a problem that whether you're willing to realize it or not persists to this day. And on the other side, the root, when it comes to the fighting of the Civil War, the, the root of, of, of what it means to fight against a brother in Christ, the root of that problem is really a citizenship problem. And that's a problem that we still see today. And though our version of the problem is not as deep, it is not as wide, it is not as, as obvious as we look back in time and look at that issue, we would be lying to ourselves if we tried to deny it tonight to, to act like it doesn't exist.
at any level today. You see, the Bible is very clear when it comes to our citizenship. Let's deal with our citizenship first, the citizenship problem when it comes to fighting in war. The Bible is very clear when it comes to our citizenship, yet many Christians struggle with that to this very day. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. There Paul is going to say, For our citizenship is where? In heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read that verse, and even though we know that our citizenship is in heaven, I know a lot of Christians who don't show it. You see, you could come here time after time and worship after worship and sing to the top of your very lungs, this world is not my home. But if you go home and your social media says the exact opposite, and your social media shows that all you care about is this world, and your social media, all it says is, is what's going on in this world, and you never once talk about the next world, you never once talk about heaven. You never once talk about the church. You never once talk about the Lord and what He's done for your life. And you never do anything on your social media but talk about this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14, the, the writer of Hebrews, he says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. We read that verse, and even though we know we are supposed to be seeking that future city, we're supposed to be seeking our home in heaven. So many of us are possessed and obsessed with our home here on earth. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, we look at this passage, and what we see here in Romans chapter 12 is... Unfortunately, the brethren in, in the 1800s, and unfortunately, brethren to this very day tonight, you and me, we're so focused on our earthly citizenship that we hardly consider our heavenly citizenship. And in doing so, we, we are so frustrated at misjustice and frustrated at 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 all the evil in our world, and we're so frustrated at politicians. But instead of overcoming evil with good, we meet evil with evil and darkness with darkness. The Southerners in the 1800s and some in the North were focused so seriously on their earthly citizenship that they forgot about their heavenly citizenship and they sought to avenge themselves, did they not? We're going to avenge ourselves 
and they gave place to their wrath. And I'm afraid that tonight there are many of us today who are guilty of the same. The Bible is clear when it comes to citizenship, but it's also clear when it comes to racism. And yet many struggle with that to this very day. If you go all the way back to the beginning, Kyle just did it this past Sunday in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we know what? The Bible tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we read that verse and we know that verse and we know that every single human being is made in the image of God. We know that every single human being that has ever walked the face of the earth good or bad, morally bankrupt or morally rich, anyone has ever lived was made in the image of God. We know that. And yet for some reason or the other, we say if the pigment of your skin is this, then that means you're here. If your pigment of skin is this, then you're here. Even though we're all made in the image of God. If you turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, 28, excuse me. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, Paul is going to say, what does he say about the church? What does he say about becoming a Christian? He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we know that Paul says that, and we know that we are all one, and there's no distinction with God, and yet we make a distinction. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35, the Bible tells us, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. God shows no partiality. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 says the same thing. For there is no partiality with God. You know how we know that's true? You know how we know that, that there is no partiality with God? Well, we turn to Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 7, we're going to see exactly who is going to be in heaven one day. And in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a multitude which no one can number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. When it comes to us, you know, that's one thing for God. Where does it say, I can't be partial? Well, James chapter 2 and verse 1. There James would say, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Tonight as we think about our lesson, Southern Christians in the 1800s were more focused on their crops than their fellow man. And in a lot of cases, their own brothers and sisters in Christ. And they went to war to maintain that way of life. And I'm afraid there are those of us today who are guilty of something similar. You see, because there are those of us today who refuse to even dare listen to another brother or sister's in Christ's experience. 
because it's never happened to me, that means it could have never happened to someone else. And we refuse to listen to, to our own brothers and sisters in Christ and to listen to their own feelings and their emotions and listen to their stories and listen to what they have to say and listen about where they are coming from. And brethren, that's wrong. We have brethren in this room frequently. We have brethren in this room tonight who remember what it was like to be told you can't drink from this fountain or you can't use this restroom. We have brethren in this room tonight who have seen the faith held with partiality. We have brethren in this congregation who were told you can't speak at that congregation or you can't attend that school. Two hundred years ago a racism problem and a citizenship problem caused a divide that we still feel to this day. That we still see to this day. The question tonight is what are they going to say about us 200 years from now? What are they going to say about you and me 200 years from now? Well, this was the time that in the church you could you could go on social media and go to war against any brother or sister in Christ. No matter how awful you made the church look, you did it anyway because you got to get what you said said. Oh, that was the time when in the church you could act like brothers and sisters when you were at church, but you could turn around and make racist jokes for a few chuckles. Oh, well, that, that, that was the time in the church when people were more focused on politicians than they were on the great physician. Thanks be to God that when it comes to judgment, when it comes to the judgment day, our God is just. That when it comes to the judgment day, He is merciful, He is holy, He is righteous, He is loving, He is graceful. But just know that He knows everything you've ever said. Everything you've ever thought. And everything you ever did. And He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In our study, the restoration movement, the windshield is obliterated. The pond is filled with the nastiest, oiliest, grossest water because the missionary society and the instrument and the civil war has blown it away. 
And all of those issues are going to lead into the ultimate division that we are going to be seeing between the church of Christ and the Christian church. But that is to be continued. Let's go to God in a word of prayer before we dismiss. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for this night, Lord, to to talk about a very difficult issue, to look back at a very difficult time in our past. Lord, none of us were there. No one in this room, in this congregation, was alive during the time that we're talking about. But every single one of us live on from the ramifications and the consequences of it. Lord, none of us are guilty of enslaving anyone but ourselves. When we enslave ourselves to sin, we enslave ourselves to darkness. Lord, I pray that we can think about our own lives and our own hearts and ask ourselves, do we go to war against our own brothers? Do we try to find seeds of of discord and seeds of division and, and do we stress those lines? Whether it be in everyday life or on social media or whatever it might be, Lord, do we stand up to the call of Christ? Lord, I pray that you'd help our citizenship issue, that we can sing this world is not our home, and that we can mean it. pray that you'd help us with our racism issue, that we can do what is right and hold the faith without partiality. Forgive us when we come up short, because we will. Thank you for Jesus, who perfects us, and ultimately one day will allow us to, as Revelation says, join together with the multitudes in worship and in praise for you for eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.